Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. So, I wanted to present to you uh, a bit of a potpourri this afternoon, but also kind of a underlying philosophical thread here is that science is messy, and we really are in a constant state of exploration and revision, and it really helps, or would help, if people had a better grasp, uh, a better understanding. And I'll be highlighting uh, one of those in uh, a story uh, that comes up, but I should finish the sentence, shouldn't I? A better understanding of mathematics and statistics and probability. Because, you see, the answer to the question really depends on how you phrase the question. And it's very, very easy to think that you're answering one question when in fact you're answering another. The predicates and the context are really, really important. And I'll highlight that, actually. I think I'll just jump off. You'll figure out what this is about. But if I frame the statement, I'd have a true statement, and I frame it as a generalizable statement, but it in fact is not generalizable to the entire population, I have said something that is true for a subset of that population, but I may not even understand that I'm talking about a subset because of the way the information is presented to me in the first place. So we'll uh, we'll come back to that. Let's see if you can figure out what that uh, subtext is that generated that whole little soliloquy. But uh, we're going to start out with some rather important breaking news that I think is really significant. We'll get down into the nitty-gritty details a little bit, but I'm going to start with just giving you uh, an extract, if you will, of an article that appeared on May 10th in the New York Times. Pancreatic cancer vaccine shows promise in small trial. So first of all, let's, uh, let's get a little context here. Uh, pancreatic cancer is... Uh, the third leading cause of cancer death in the United States, and it's the seventh cause worldwide, the incidence is going up. And for the last 60 years, the survival rate of 12% just hasn't budged. Uh, pancreatic cell cancer, ductal adenocarcinoma, to be exact, is uh, projected to cause an even greater global cancer death rate by 2025. And surgery is the only treatment, and 90% of patients who have surgery have disease recurrence at a median of seven to nine months, and the, over year, the overall five-year survival is only eight to 10%. So that's kind of daunting, and we all as doctors kind of shrug our shoulders when someone's diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. I actually have a couple of survivors over the last 30 years, and they were all caught accidentally. Because the problem is pancreatic cancer 
is somewhat invisible to the immune system, unlike most other cancers. It doesn't make as many cell surface antigens that can be recognized as cancer disease antigens by the immune system. So it's sort of immunologically stealth, like, you know, the Harry Potter cape of invisibility. It just kind of strolls by the cancer, strolls by the immune cells and they don't notice. Nope, nothing to see here, folks. Well, yeah, and that's been a problem because one of our more promising theories, uh, uses is CART T cell therapy, which is where you train T cells to attack cancers. We'll come back to that. The other really useful new thing that we've got besides chemo is immune checkpoint inhibitors, which because they depend on un, uh, well, basically depend on an immune system that can recognize the tumor don't work in pancreatic cancer for exactly that reason. They're kind of stealth. So what's the solution? And I'll read you the intro here in the article. I thought uh, Ben Mueller, the author of this study, did a very good job with his setup. Five years ago, a small group of cancer scientists meeting at a restaurant in a deconcentrated church hospital in Mainz, Germany, drew up an audacious plan. They would test their novel cancer vaccine, vaccine against one of the most virulent forms of the disease, a cancer notorious for roaring back even in patients whose tumors had been completely removed. The vaccine might not stop those relapses, some of the scientists figured, but patients were desperate, and the speed with which the disease, pancreatic cancer, often recurred could work to the scientists' advantage. For better or worse, they would find out soon enough whether the vaccine helped. Well, those scientists worked for a uh, uh, worked uh, on their cancer vaccine. It was based on the same technology in some ways as the COVID vaccine. More about that in a moment. But on Wednesday, uh, they reported their results. This is two weeks ago now. Uh, and it defied the odds. They scored a home run here. They provoked an immune response in half of the patients they treated. It was a small group. So, uh, but those people showed no relapse of their cancer during the course of the study, uh, which was substantially different from the control group, and it's extremely promising. Also, the the vaccine that they were given actually did produce a rather substantial T-cell response, and they were able to test those T-cells in the people who did respond and find a substantial increase in the ability of those T-cells to go after pancreatic cancer in general. So how they did this was that they took the surgical tissue and then mushed it up, essentially, and added it into the uh, into a vaccine, this vaccine was based on the BioNTech COVID vaccine. It's an mRNA vaccine. And in this case, it was, let's make the messenger RNA for these unique tumor proteins that they were able to locate on the pancreatic cells. And it worked. It worked. 
they got the, and it was fast. I think that's really key given the speed that this disease goes. The patients began getting their vaccines roughly nine weeks after having their tumors removed. And eventually the company thinks they'll be able to make these individual cancer vaccines in about four weeks. They also were able to scale up their cost or scale down their cost uh, by almost 75%. So the cost of the vaccines uh, about a decade ago were $350,000 per dose when we st- first started exploring this. Now they're down to 100000 And remember, we're not talking about multiple doses. We're talking about one dose of a vaccine to get this benefit. There are only a few genetic changes on the pancreatic cancers that can be targeted, but they were able to find a few, and that worked. Uh, This cancer vaccine approach was really uh, just hit out of the park by Moderna and Merck when a uh, cancer vaccine for melanoma came out a while back. Uh, This was announced maybe six weeks ago, but melanoma is kind of a low bar as far as antigens go because it has tons of antigens and the idea of immune therapy against melanoma is at least a decade old successfully a combination of immune therapy and immune checkpoint inhibitors because it's so recognizable by the immune system really worked part of the reason melanoma is such a nasty spreader is that it has the intrinsic ability to uh, turn down the immune system response Now, another really interesting thing about this group is that one patient uh, who was being monitored, who was in the vaccine group, developed a bump in a tumor marker, uh, C19. And this is a marker that's very common in general for in cancer. So it's one of the ones that we use, and it's made by pancreatic cancers. So he showed a bump in his tumor marker. Think of it like a PSA. Your PSA bumped after your prostate cancer surgery, that's not a good sign. It suggests that the prostate cancer has escaped and is hiding out somewhere and making this tumor antigen or tumor marker. So this fellow had antibodies against uh, his pancreatic cancer. He showed evidence of a uh, growth in his liver, and they took a biopsy of the liver, and they didn't find any cancer there. What they found instead was rot, basically dead cancer that looked like it had been successfully eradicated by the uh, immune system. And in fact, over time, his markers began to drop. So they caught it right at the inflection point because they were watching him like a hawk. But we know that the immune system goes out and kills cancers, Uh all the time. And we know that because when we give immunosuppressants, lots of cancers show up. And of course, we had the rather awful example of HIV to teach us that the immune system is always getting rid of certain cancers, which are actually fairly common if you don't have an immune system. So this really is big news, and it's very promising, and it's very small group, and it needs to replicate And the time was very short. So this is being announced at the 18-month mark on the average follow-up. But what we can say is that the people who did uh, the the people who received the the attempt at getting 
a vaccine and did not respond, they didn't show an increase in their antibodies, uh, were compared with the group that did show the increase in their antibodies. So these were both people who had been essentially stratified into the same group, and one group then converted to a control when they didn't respond, but they weren't a control group at the start. They were actually an attempted treatment group who became the control group because of non-response. Anyway, the difference was rather significant. The control group, and I'm putting that in quotes, had already shown uh, recurrent uh, had had recurrence all of them at 13 months, whereas the uh, treatment group, the vaccinated group at 18 months, uh, had not had a recurrence yet. So. We don't know how long this vaccine is going to be effective, but they've already won the race, so to speak. And part of the reason that this worked was that they used drugs that allowed the immune system to be stimulated so that when they vaccinated people, it would form uh, antibodies. So there's a lot of detail here, which I think is not germane to our discussion But the fact of the matter is, this is uh, potentially a very big deal. And after 60 years of trying to find something that would move the needle on this, very good news for everybody. Let's go on to our next story. This is coming out of a yearly uh, thing that comes out in the American Academy of Family Physician uh, Journal. And it's called uh, Problem-Oriented Evidence That Matters. And the idea is there's a lot of research out there that it really doesn't matter in primary care. We've gone through the literature and cherry-picked the things that seem to really work. So the first two stories here are about statins and cardiovascular events. And this was a meta-analysis that looked at 19 different studies, 132,000 people. The studies were typically three to six years in duration. And what they found was that statins over that three to six year uh, period reduced the risk of overall death by 0.8%, myocardial infarction by 1.3%, and stroke by 0.4%. Now, that is taking all comers. However, when you looked at statins for primary prevention, the reductions were smaller, 0.6 fewer deaths, 0.7 fewer myocardial infections, and 0.3 fewer strokes. So I like to use the number needed to treat. How many primary prevention patients would you need to treat to prevent one stroke? And the answer is you'd have to treat 63 people to prevent one event over three to six years. The confidence interval for uh, just all-cause mortality was 88 over several years of treatment. So in other words, uh, it really didn't reduce things by enough to maybe make it worthwhile most of the time. That's debatable. It depends on how you want to weigh this. Uh, But the point is, the statistics that usually get thrown at you are, and I'm going to quote from this uh, email that I'm about to read you, 
Statins have been incredibly consistent in delivering 20% to 25% reductions in future cardiac events. Now, that is also true. How can a reduction of point zero, oh, sorry, 0.7 correlate to a 25% reduction? Well, it depends kind of on how what you want to prove, but the elephant in the room here is that statins do deliver a 20% reduction in future cardiac events, but they only deliver it in people who have had a cardiac event or have multiple stents. In other words, have almost, have a, had a missed heart attack or developed angi- chest pain and were uh, analyzed through angiography and found to have triple vessel disease. And when you have patients like that, yeah, giving them a statin uh, reduces by one fifth. That's what twenty percent uh, reduction means. Their chances of having a heart attack in the next fill in the interval. On the other hand, if you're the same age and you've never had a heart attack, then you're looking at a one percent decrease, which is just ridiculous to be going after. Really, the decrease in frequency in the primary prevention group. Primary prevention means you've not had the problem. We're trying to prevent it from happening in the first place. Secondary prevention means you have the problem and we're trying to reduce your chances of having another event. Now, I had a conversation with a cardiologist the other day. No, yeah, I I think it was a cardiologist. It was an internal medicine uh, physician anyway, and it was kind of one of those corridor conversations and, you know, I roll about these patients that won't take their statins, and I'm always trying to get them to take them, and they won't do it. And, you know, they reduce, you know, they drastically reduce your your risk of having a heart attack. And I'm like, no, they don't. They don't drastically do much. I don't know that a 20% decrease would be considered drastic in anybody's book, but that's as good as it gets. So the number needed to treat of 63 I've heard 50 before, and I've used that statistic on the show. This bigger meta-analysis says maybe it isn't even that good. Uh, if you're a primary prevention, but if, you're, if you've had a heart attack and you take the medication, you've got a, a 20% reduction. So the number to need to treat, to treat is about eight. So that starts to look like a decent Statistic, one in eight reduction, you know, reduction versus one in 63. Uh, Yeah, I think we can put that one to bed. But I want to just tell you what prompted this. This came from David. I thought you might be interested in this study that looked at over 10,000 discussions on Reddit that mentioned statins. And he uh, it, the commentary was labeled Declining Trust in Medicine and Statins. And this uh, is, an, is a commentary written uh, talking about this Stanford research group talking about Reddit. And they noticed that the raw number of discussions on statins have increased. Most discussions were neutral or negative. And they were surprised to see so much discussion refuting the idea that increased devil levels of LDL were detrimental. Well, any regular listeners to this show knows that LDL, high LDL is not enough. They need to be small particles and there needs to be inflammation. Uh, 
and so the rest of this is a, is a kind of a panegyric against statins and against social media, uh, rather, and how people rely on social media for uh, information. And then he segues to talking about trust in the medical profession. And I agree with every single one of his criticisms of the medical profession. Uh, he says we're too paternalistic. Uh, we... We instead of promoting a culture of critical appraisal, we take a paternalistic, holier-than-thou approach. Guideline-directed medical therapy is not credible with the American people, and it's not credible with me either. He talks about the pandemic and how we decreed something, and then we decreed something else, and we didn't have evidence, and we wouldn't admit it. We just kind of insisted uh, and I'm not entirely sure that we had much else uh, in, in, to do except insist and pray that we could keep this thing in check. But I will say, you know, doctors have PTSD about uh, global pandemics probably more uh, makes them act out of fear. And you can argue whether or not that's rational. But we do need to be less threatening to our patients and discuss probabilities in a way that patients can understand. That's a difficult job, especially given the nature of uh, science education to the American public. But nevertheless, just because it's a tough job doesn't mean we shouldn't try to do it. And we're going to go to our next email. This from uh, Heidi in some, from somewhere. Uh, Heidi writes, Hello, Dr. Don. I'm interested in non-pharmacological interventions for pain. I have bilateral knee osteoarthritis. I'm a 68-year-old female. I use fish oil, curcumin, uh, red light heat, exercise, five days a week at the gym, and playing in the dirt with flowers and plants. Capsaicin cream. I wrap my knees with plastic wrap. It's hot, but when the hot wears off, pain relief. I do my best to stay away from sugar and other inflammatory foods. I recently heard about SPMs for inflammation and pain. Parenthetically, folks, SPM stands for Specialized Pro-Resolving Mediators. My understanding, Heidi continues, is that SPMs reduce pain by reducing inflammation. Ibuprofen, I try not to use it too often, blocks pain, but the inflammation remains as is or gets worse. Would you please talk about SPMs and their relationship to pain and any other interventions for knee pain? So uh, let's start, Heidi, with my saying that ibuprofens do reduce inflammation. Uh, they're a class called non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, and they work by blocking an enzyme called cyclooxygenase, which is responsible for turning uh, alpha lipoic, uh, sorry, uh, alpha linoleic acid, which is found in flaxseed and omega six fatty acids in general, into uh, prostaglandins, leukotrienes, and SPMs. Each of those, uh, the foster, uh, the prostaglandins, which is what we're blocking with the ibuprofen, uses the that enzyme cyclooxygenase. The leukotrienes. Uh, which uh, are made by an enzyme called lipooxygenase, are blocked by some of the allergy drugs we have. Montelukast um, is uh, the one that's most commonly used. That goes by the trade name Singular, and a lot of people take that for allergies or asthma. 
And there's another enzyme, the name of which I do not recall, which makes these SPMs. And these are late phase anti-inflammatories. So this whole little ALA to prostaglandin system is a self-contained little loop. And like most biological systems, it has a break and an accelerator. And these are typically temporally generated through the genetics. So the genetics first makes something, and then there's a delay, a clock, and then it starts making the anti-something. So first you make the inflammatory agents, and then tick-tock goes the clock, and you start producing the messenger RNA for the anti-inflammatory agents so that you turn off the reaction. So you want to you know, put out the fire and then turn off the water hose. And that's really uh, what's happening here. So with the case of the SPMs, they're very similar to a anti-inflammatory lately arriving compound. So a, a late application of the brakes. Clinically, I've seen them work really well for some people and not very well for others. I suspect there's some biological variability in how many uh, uh, on on whether you make SPMs very well in the first place, in which case giving more doesn't do much because they're already doing everything they can. Uh, it will, Time will tell, and in a, a trial, I would buy a month's supply of the stuff and see if it helps you. Holding all of the other things that you're doing neutral, don't change them, and then you might want to continue on the medication if it seems beneficial, or the supplement, let's call it a nutraceutical, uh, you might continue on that if it seems beneficial and worth the cost, because these are proprietary substances, and they're not cheap. On the other hand, if it gets rid of your pain, it's a bargain. The other point you asked was other interventions for knee pain. I like what you're doing. Um, I'd like to see you swimming or doing pool exercise in a heated pool. I think that could benefit your knee, but you need to be exercising in a weightless environment, and a swimming pool is the best way to get that. Uh, I also want to recommend the use of CBD and C. GD, which CGD is an emerging cannabinoid, and it's highly anti-inflammatory and also anti-pain. It may, uh, and it's not psychoactive, so it doesn't turn into CH uh, to THC in your system, and it won't get you high. So it also won't impair your ability to drive or affect your balance or any of the other things that, with older patients, we're trying to avoid. Uh, I hope this is helpful for you. I'm also a great fan of acupuncture. Some people respond really well to Boswellia, which is a which is frankincense actually, but about 500 milligrams three times a day can be extremely beneficial. And let's not forget Tylenol. I know it's you know a standard it's a standard pharmaceutical, but it is pretty safe at lower doses. What's low? Up to three grams a day. Six. In other words, 3,000 milligrams a day. So pretty high doses. And it does not have any effect whatsoever on inflammation. It just goes to the brain and turns down the pain signal. So I hope that's been helpful. 
and I look forward to hearing from you again. Thanks for listening to the podcast. And Heidi uh, reached us by going to askdrdawn.com and clicking the Contact Us button. All right, moving on. We're going to look at things that work, things that don't, new innovations, breaking through bacterial barriers in chronic treatment-resistant wounds. So many of you who are regular listeners will have heard about this pesky stuff called a biofilm. And uh, biofilms are produced by many uh, classes of bacteria, and they act as a physical barrier to antibiotics. They also in, they're also basically just goo. Uh, you may have some biofilm growing on your water faucet in your home, and that kind of black goop that uh, you might see at the uh, at the outlet sometimes that's uh, that's biofilm. Biofilm is what is you're scraping off your teeth when you go to the dentist because the uh, bacteria in your mouth form a biofilm, and then that biofilm uh, calcifies, grabbing calcium out of your saliva, and forms a nice secure fortress of solitude for those bacteria where they can grow and thrive. But the gooey biofilm, uh, well, they're even more insidious because the gooey biofilms that you find inside a wound or, let's say, in the intestine, uh, in the sinuses in particular, where they're really a problem, they are a place to go and hibernate for the bacteria. So, when they're trapped in that inside that biofilm, they don't have as much access to nutrients and oxygen, so they go into hibernation. And they're called persister cells, persistence and uh, persister cells for persistence in this state because they are extremely resistant to antibiotics because antibiotics work by poisoning physiology. And if your metabolism and your physiology are on hold, there's nothing for the antibiotics to attack. So we got a big problem here. And so the so researchers were trying to solve this problem. This was the uh, University of North Carolina who did this. And they combined uh, palmitoleic acid, which is a natural compound. It's naturally produced in the body and found in the liver but it's also abundant in macadamia oil and sea buckthorn oil. And it has potent antibacterial properties, which are poorly understood because they've not really been well studied. They also use gentamicin, an antibiotic that most Staph aureus is actually already resistant to. And they went after the big bad staph, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, which has an extra enzyme, that allows it to melt body tissue so it can dive deep and make a big hole where it can live happily ever after uh, until it gets into your bloodstream. And then, of course, it kills the host. And that's you. So it's not a uh, long-term good strategy, but uh, living entities often, <laughs> often poison their environment. And in fact, uh, bacteria in a Petri dish metaphors have been abounding in the last 50 years with, in reference to global warming. But that just putting it on like a salve wouldn't work. Uh, they used special lipid droplets here containing this omega-7. And uh, these, li- these, these droplets can be activated by ultrasound. 
Uh, and then they put them in the liquid and turn, put the, the genomycin and the uh, palmito, excuse me, uh, palmitoleic acid in there and hit the ultrasound machine. The ultrasound machine caused uh, it to form these little micro bubbles. Uh, and I'm thinking about the effervescent, the effervescent denture cleaners that I remember the ads for uh, when I was growing up on te- and used to watch television with ads on it and didn't have a fast forward button. Uh, but it allows, because it's ultrasound, you can aim it. And so you can really target it just to the wound and vibrating this stuff and vibrates it into the uh, into the biofilm and penetrates it and really allows it, you to get your active agents to the bacteria, which even in the persister state, the uh, palmitoleic acid is able to kill the persister cells and reverse the antibiotics resistance, presumably because you get it to uh, you get it deeply inside the cell where uh, the cell can't resist it anymore. It's very interesting. And ultrasound has been used uh, somewhat to try and clean wounds and uh, increased blood flow. But knowing now that we can actually uh, attack biofilms is going to go a long way for wound healing. So that's a potential success. Now, this study is about, well, therapeutic nihilism may be the thing we need to be applying. When I say therapeutic nihilism, I'm talking about specifically with reference to the disease of prostate cancer. This study was done, uh, well, I should say it was initiated back in 1999 and for 10 years in the United Kingdom, where they have a good internal linked medical record across all facilities and pharmacies. And boy, am I jealous. Anyway, 82,000 men between 50 and 69 years of age received a PSA test. And of those, localized prostate cancer was diagnosed in 2,664 men. Of those, they enrolled 1,643 in a trial to evaluate the effectiveness of treatments. And so they randomly assigned them, of course, uh, to receive uh, active monitoring, to undergo prostatectomy, or to undergo radiotherapy. And active monitoring means we don't do anything, we just keep monitoring you. And maybe we act if uh, the disease progresses, but we don't do any, we don't try to remove the disease. So the study of Here we are. That was 2009 when the study closed. Here we are in 2023. So we have uh, pretty interesting data. I said that there were 1,600 men who uh, were enrolled in this study. So of that, death from prostate cancer occurred in 45 men, Uh, 2.7% in the watch and and wait group, 3.1% in the prostatectomy group, Uh, group and 2.9% in the radiotherapy group. So definitely statistically non-significant. 
basically death from all cause mortality was the same so that uh, for all three groups so that indicates that they were in fact fairly similar in terms of their morbidity and mortality from other causes now there was a difference in terms of metastases 9.4% in the do nothing group 4.7 in the prostatectomy and 5 in the radiotherapy group so both prostatectomy and radiotherapy cut the risk of metastasis in half and uh, so long uh, the other therapies like androgen deprivation therapy uh, were in- initiated in 69 men uh, pl- clinical uh, progression occurred in uh, about the same number actually uh, clinical pro- uh, progression was uh, greater in the watch and wait group that's to be expected 26% in that group versus 10 or 11% in the treatment groups but uh, in the active monitoring group uh, 24% were alive without any pro- specific prostate cancer treatment at the end of the follow-up and that was about the same amount that was still alive in the treatment groups. So 15 years of follow-up, prostate cancer mortality is pretty low compared to other causes of death because these are older gentlemen who have a use-by date or you know have a best-by date, let's say, and uh, they're going to die of something, but generally not of their prostate cancer. Now, this is in great contradistinction to what we saw for breast cancer and colon cancer in about the same the same time interval. So what it shows is that you finding the cancer early detection only works if you have effective therapy, and even if you have effective therapy, the cancer may not the, having the cancer may not affect the uh, endpoint, which is to say, how uh, how long do you live? This one looks promising. Early reports for magnetic brain stimulation, transcranial magnetic stimulation of the brain, definitely brought in mixed results. Now researchers have figured out that you need to map the brain first, and this research, led by Stanford medicine scientists, found that if you map the brain of the individual first, you can make a big difference in diagnosing and also treating depression. This study looked at brain functioning using functional MRI and compared active areas in the brain. And they looked at the differences in timing between activation of different areas to reveal the direction of that of that activity. So the one that starts, that pops up first is the cause, and the one that pops up second is the target or the result of the cause. And using that type of mapping, they personalized each person's brain anatomy, exactly where is the depressed thought coming from. And they, this is called Stanford Neuromodulatory Therapy, and it uses the advanced imaging, but it also... Uh, guides stimulation with high-dose patterns of magnetic pulses that can actually modify brain activity. And compared with the traditional therapy, which is very onerous, you're talking daily sessions over several weeks, this works uh, 
on an accelerated timeline with ben- with benefits uh, evident after just five days. So it's 10 sessions a day, and the sessions are short. Uh, and they did a, a sham treatment group. So this is a placebo-controlled trial. And they also had 75 healthy controls without depression. And when they looked at the MRI data, one connection stood out. In the normal brain, the anterior insula, which is a region that integrates body sensations, it's down there and it sends, it's down there and sort of says, okay, that signal, that's coming from my left thumb. And it makes mistakes sometimes too, because this, it can't differentiate between the left thumb and the nerve that goes to the left thumb. So if the nerve that goes to the left thumb is being pinched in the neck, for example, you might have left thumb pain from your neck problem. Uh, but anyway, normally the insula integrates these body sensations and then sends the signals to the region uh, that governs emotion. This is the anterior cingulate cortex. And you could think of that as the anterior cingulate cortex receiving information, like the heart rate or the temperature, and then deciding how to feel about the signals. But in three-quarters of the patients with depression, the flow of activity was reversed the anterior cingulate cortex was sending signals to the insula and presumably to other parts of the brain as well. And the more severe the depression, the more reverse traffic you had traveled the wrong way. One of the researchers, Dr. Mitra, said it's almost as if you'd already decided how you were going to feel and then everything you were sensing was filtered through that. The mood becomes the primary uh, and that's what we see with depression, right? Even things that should that are quite joyful to a patient normally are just not bringing any joy or pleasure to the depressed individual. They literally have lost their taste for life. And so the researchers said, all right, well, that's, we'll be mechanistic about this. So they treated them with this Stanford neurotherapy, and they essentially stimulated the insula and the flow of of neural activity shifted to the normal direction within about a week, and this correlated well with the lifting of depression. The worse the depression, the better the benefit. And so just the direction of flow of these two signals, or rather the signals between these two brain regions, predicts the change in clinical symptoms. Now you could flip that and say, well, can we use this uh, as a biomarker? We have a therapeutic tool that tells us if this is clinical depression. Uh, that what what things I'm thinking about is we have different kinds of depression. We have vegetative depression. Uh, we have atypical depression, and we I've always thought uh, that the researchers who think that those are two very different kinds of disease that are manifesting as depressed mood. Well, now we have a chance to test that hypothesis. Some types of depression are probably inflammatory and caused by uh, excessive activation of the glial cells in the brain and other, and perhaps also of cells in the limbic system that control mood, like the amygdala. So we now have a ter- therapeutic tool and at least a core concept to start teasing this apart. It's not exactly mind-reading, but it is brain reading. And since right now what we've been doing is throwing darts in a dark room, hoping to hit the target with our drugs and our therapies, 
just even having a feedback loop that says, yes, you shifted the signal with fill in the blank, that's going to be really valuable and give us a much more rapid iteration as we try to figure out how to use these new tools in a targeted way that will actually shift neurological functioning in the brain. It's very exciting. So functional MRI is really coming into its own, uh, doing these brain prints, if you will, uh, are showing the individual differences uh, between people. And it turns out people's brains are really, really different. They wire as we mature, uh, starting out as almost not quite a blank slate, but certainly not uh, full of neurons that aren't doing anything when we're born. We have way more neurons when we're born than when we're adults. And what happens is a selective process called pruning and if you've ever done pruning of a bush or something, or or if someone's come and pruned your bush without uh, your supervision, you can sometimes find that it's been, let's see, not pruned in the way you would have done it, to put it mildly. Uh, well, people's brains prune based on what neurons keep firing, and what neurons fire are the ones that connect to each other, and those connections are called synapses. And if a brain neuron isn't being triggered or isn't being used during this early formative period, it actually gets pruned away. So this is a very emergent, organic kind of process with no roadmap except the stimulation and the signals that are coming in from the environment. So in a normally developing human brain, it's pruned by the sounds we hear, such that we literally can't make certain sounds if we don't hear them as a child. Hence, the persistence of accents in individuals, let's say, who learn English in their teens or 20s, uh, you'll, they'll never really get the full-on uh, American or British accent because they and gosh, when you go across things like languages with glottal stops, it gets even more uh, critical. You simply hardwire that stuff in. Well, epilepsy gets hardwired too. And if you look at a person's brainwave recording data and build a model using functional MRI, you can target where to treat for epileptic seizures much more effectively. So currently... Researchers are using MRI and EEGs to investigate brain activity, and they put about 16 electrodes uh, through the skull to monitor the activities of specific areas in the brain in these patients with refractory epilepsy. So they literally, literally are wired to a helmet for a couple of weeks. But this only captures high-frequency currents. It doesn't capture low-frequency activity, and about 20% of seizures, it misses the target. Uh, it's very hard to find the epileptic zone, and you know the success rate of epileptic surgery is only about 50% because we're missing the target. So they're using artificial intelligence to combine MRI, EEG, and this trans, uh, this stereo electroencephalography, and then do AI based simulations of the model to predict the brain activity and determine the zone most likely to be responsible for the seizures. And so it's 
the current research and the current strategy is uh, very good, and they're starting to see uh, substantial improvement of the targeting and at least the in initial phases, the success of these epileptic surgeries. So again, incremental movement forward, but in a very positive direction. So while we're on the subject of pruning and thus neuroplasticity, a recent study published in Neuropsychopharmacology, uh, this comes from Helinski and the University of Eastern Finland, looks at mechanisms of neuroplasticity induced by, of all things, Prozac. Uh, Previous research by this team showed that chronic treatment with antidepressants increased neuroplasticity through direct binding to something called neurotropic receptor TRKB. Uh, And they found that fluoxetine facilitated the erasure of learned fear responses. So, for example, in mice, you know, they love to make anxious mice by giving them some electric shock or trying, or trying to drown them. So then they would give them Prozac, and the, the uh, mice were less likely to reactivate on their, uh, on their fear response. They, all, they, were, they also did better with spatial pattern uh, recognition. So this is super interesting. It actually kind of made the mice smarter at solving mazes. And so they looked at what was going on, you know, neurologically, and they found that fluoxetine uh, created changes in the GABA synapses and also uh, enzymes involved in the formation of something called the perineuronal net. So this is, you've heard of neural nets. Well, this is the the goo that surrounds the neurons that create the neural net and it changed the nutritional qualities of this that led to the stimulation of the nerves. So this is actually kind of a biochemical effect related to Prozac. It may have absolutely nothing to do with the selective serotonin reuptake uh, function of this drug. It's probably a complete off-target finding. Of course, it needs to be checked against the other SSRIs because one of the others might work even better at this. But clearing the head of fear, making people less likely to reactivate their fear response in a similar but not identical situation, you know, clinically, I would say that that sort of sounds a little bit like the effect of the SSRIs in general. A lessening of what I would call catastrophication, where it's like, oh no, here it comes again. Less of that sort of sinking quality that comes from assuming the worst is headed your way. Probably what will prove to be our last story tonight. Uh, A recent study looks at why high sugar diets can worsen inflammatory bowel disease. This was published in the Cellular and Molecular Gastroenterology and Hepatology Journal. And limiting sugary foods is one of those functional medicine things that we say if there's inflammation, whether it's in the gut or in the knee, limit your sugary foods, as per Heidi's email. And they started out by feeding mice either a standard or a high sugar diet, and then they gave the mice IBD by giving them a chemical, DSS, that causes damage to the colon. And then they had a big surprise because 
all the mice on the high sugar diet died within nine days, and all the animals on the standard diet survived till the end of the 14-day experiment. So sugar was definitely no bueno in this circumstance. And so they took a look at the colon, and what they found was really interesting. First of all, I need to tell you that the colon's lined with a layer of epithelial cells that are arranged in these finger-like projections. And at the base between the fingers, where the webs are on your fingers, is something called a crypt. And the crypt is where the new cells grow. And it's like a hair follicle. The cells just keep constantly being pooped out by the crypt and climbing up these little finger-like progressions and then getting rubbed off at the top by friction and damage from digestive juices and everything else that's passing through there. And the the cycling time is about five days, so you essentially make a new colon every five days. So when the mice on the high-sugar diet got this DSS, uh, they couldn't regenerate their protective epithelial, and so their colon was leaky as hell, and they got septic and died. But high-sugar diet was also lethal in germ-free mice. So we've been thinking this was a microbiome effect, but in germ-free mice... There's no microbiome. And what they found was that the cells divide more slowly in the presence of sugar. And they switch their epigenetics, and they no longer respond to short-chain fatty acids, which are the things that usually feed the colonocytes. So it altered their metabolic pathways, and it shifted the speed of their growth, lowered the amount of ATP they could produce, and essentially completely torpedoed the healing process that's absolutely critical for recovering from inflammatory bowel disease. So, if you didn't need if you haven't already heard it, uh, a high sugar diet is really bad for you. We didn't have sugar in evolution. We didn't have concentrated sugar at all. It's a new to nature molecule effectively in the concentrations that it is regularly consumed. And we wonder why We have all these chronic diseases emerging in our populations. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans. Or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Don is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Bansky. Music by John Scoville.